This is the GP Soccer Podcast with your host, Giovanni Piccini. everyone, Giovanni Puccini here, your host of the GP Soccer Podcast. Uh, let me say, buongiorno, uh, guten tag, guten morgen, bonjour. I, I guess I'm running out of foreign language, uh, languages. I think that's all I know off the top of my head. Uh, I'm not multilingual. Bilingual, yes. Italian and English, multilingual, no, not so much. I'm going to have to learn some more uh, good days, good mornings, hi, how are you, in different languages for you, my wonderful global audience. And uh, don't let me forget as well, my audience um, in the Boston area on WMEX AM 1510. And if you haven't heard by now, I'll say it once again, I will shamelessly plug another show that I'm hosting, uh, WMEX AM 1510 in Boston, as I noted, and streaming on WMEXBoston.com, a show called Direct Kick, where you can listen to uh, Tuesdays, 6 to 7 p.m., or once again, like I said, uh, streaming as well. So that's a very long way of me saying hello to everybody, no matter where you are. Um, every once in a while, um, I, I share with folks um, opportunities that I think that, that they should take a step back and listen to a previous week's show or a previous episode uh, that I had aired here on the GP Soccer Podcast. And I don't do it all the time, but, but I do it when I think, boy, that particular show, that particular interview, that particular interview guest was uh, someone you really, really should uh, you should check out and listen to. And, and last week's show with Tom Shields, who's the technical director for STA, is one of those interviews that if you didn't hear the show, if you didn't hear the interview, please uh, you know please tune in, please tune in, tune in. Uh, Tom is such an insightful, intellectual um, individual who, uh, who's a great expert in teaching the game of soccer. Um, I listened to the show twice, believe it or not. I, now, I listened to, I'm going to pull back the curtain here a little bit, and I'm going to digress for half a second. I listened to all of my shows, not because I'm a narcissist and I like to hear my voice. No, I listened to the show with a very, very, very critical ear. You know, how did the opening go? How did the interview go? Were your questions good? I was the flow of the show, all the things that go into, you know, putting together a broadcast such as this one, much like when you coach. When you finish a training session or you've just finished uh, coaching a game, you know, if you're you're serious about you, what you do, you always reflect. You look back. Uh, you know, how did that training session go? Did I do a good job managing the match today? Well, this is no different. I will reflect and look back on each and every one of my episodes on the GP Soccer Podcast and now with Direct Kick over on, on MEX. But the second time I tuned into last week's show with Tom Shields, I listened to it strictly as... I guess I'll just call myself a fan and someone, you know, who, who just wanted to listen to the show without the critical ear, if you will. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I did. It was one of those uh, terrific conversations, terrific interviews uh, with Tom Shields. So, you know, like I always say, and I make no apologies for saying this maybe too often, but I make no apologies. If you're part of a youth soccer organization, a town organization, a club, high school, colleges, 
this is one of those episodes that you need to share among those within your, you, you know, your social media network or within those communities, within those organizations, because there's something in there that will resonate for everyone in those respective organizations that I just outlined. There really, really is. And there's so much thought-provoking content, information, material that Tom shares with you, the listening audience, that if, you, if you're open-minded and you really want to do a good job in teaching the game and, and, and developing players and coaches, this is an interview that's worth listening to. So uh, just check it out. I mean, you, you know, every single one of the GP Soccer podcasts from season one to season eight, all 100, where am I at now? 130, 130 shows are available, uh, you know, wherever you listen to your podcast. But that's that's just one of those interviews that, that I encourage you all to, um, to to check out if you haven't done so already. Today, our guest on the interview block uh, beyond the uh, commercial break will be Skip Gilbert. He is the CEO of USYS. He's a returning guest, and I, and I so, so enjoy talking to Skip, whether it's formally here on my show or informally, where he and I chat about some some common passions and common things we have an interest we, we have a, uh, an interest in uh, relative to the sport of soccer uh, and you're gonna you're gonna kind of you know kind of uh, be a fly on the wall so to speak when, when skip and I kind of dive into those uh, those areas of, of the game that we again again we have a, a common interest in so you'll enjoy that uh, that uh, interview beyond the commercial break so the soap opera that is US soccer continues and I, and I guess you know, if it's a soap opera, this is, I guess, a, a good a good chapter or a good part. Uh, U.S. Soccer has hired uh, Matt Crocker as the uh, organization's new sporting director. Uh, he is the uh, formerly director of football at Southampton in the English Premier League, which uh, by all accounts are not doing too well this year in the English Premier League. I think they are destined for relegation. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Matt uh, has been hired. And it is the, uh, you know, the first step, if you will, of putting a piece of the puzzle in place that will lead us to eventually hiring a new head men's coach for the full national team. Now, Crocker replaces Ernie Stewart, who stepped down from that gig uh, back in January to uh, return to PSV Eindhoven. And, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Crocker is, you know, has, has got an excellent resume, as, as you might expect, and he's... Uh, has worked at Southampton's uh, academy that produced such talents as Gareth Bale and Luke Shaw. And, uh, you know, he steps in during a time of, of um, turmoil, uh, a mess, if you will, uh, as we all know, that the mess and the turmoil, uh, controversy that surrounded Greg Berhalter and Gio Reyna, and then eventually Gio Reyna's uh, parents, in uh, particular Claudia Reyna and his wife. Uh, it's just, it was just an absolute mess. It, it was... Uh, something reminiscent of, a, of, of, of uh, youth sports in, in the worst possible manner. But yet there it was in full display at, the, at a full national team level and worse yet at a World Cup. Um, so we can only hope that, uh, you know, hiring of, of Matt Crocker is a step in the right direction, which I'm sure it will be. And we can kind of move on to next, um, you know, looking to hire a, a, a full national team coach. Now, this is not to say that uh, Greg Berhalter is out of the running. There's, there's no reason... Why you still can't, you know, keep keep Greg Berhalter's name in the mix? There's no reason not to. Um, you know, if if none of the Gio Reyna stuff had ever taken place, I think Greg Berhalter, whose name would, would still be would still be uh, in, in the midst of the conversation. He's indicated that he wants the job back. 
Um, but that remains to be seen. That remains to be seen. I, I have said it before, and I will say it again, and I think it's a, a foregone conclusion that if you do indeed bring Greg Berhalter back, um, Gio Reyna is going to be on the team. Gio Reyna is going to be on the U.S. men's national team. And then that particular cloud is going to hang over both of them, as well as the entire team and program, every day that they're together. And when you're approaching a World Cup uh, where you're one of the hosts, because as we know, the United States is hosting as well as Mexico and Canada, you don't, you don't need any black clouds. You don't, that's the last thing you need. It's the last thing you need. So yes, Greg Berhalter's name is still in contention. Will he be named? Eh, if you ask me, if I'm a betting man, eh, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. And I'll end. I'm going to put my I'm going to put my toe on the third rail here. Why not? It's my show, uh, and it's a rhetorical question. You know, we're, we're, we've gone outside of the boundaries of the United States of America, which is absolutely vast in terms of our soccer resources, soccer experts, soccer knowledge. You know, we're we're not a third world soccer nation. We're, we're, we're rather sophisticated. We've got a ways to go. We've got a ways to go, I grant you. Um, but do we have to once again go overseas to seek out the type of expertise necessary to develop our players, to develop our coaches, to develop our respective age group national teams to uh, you know have an impact on the game in general here in the United States? Well, we've done it again. Again, rhetorical question. Not, I'm not going one way or the other. At the end of the day, you want the best qualified person to take a job. That's anything, you know, whether it's the you know, sporting director for U.S. soccer or you know, filling in a role in your, your accounting firm. You, you just want the best person you know, to come in and, and do the job and do the job. But I guess I'm kind of hinting over the fact that, heck, you know, it would be nice if we saw more of an emphasis on, you know, Folks who, who have come through the system here in the United States have proven to be, you know, quality, quality teachers of the game, coaches, managers, administrators to oversee U.S. soccer, oversee the, these types of positions, um, in this case, sporting director. Two cents, two cents right there. So there you go. That's that's our opening today on the GP Soccer Podcast. Um, on the other side of the commercial break, as, as I noted, the terrific Skip Gilbert we, will be our guest. He is the CEO of USYS. Giovanni Piccini here, GP Soccer Podcast. Don't you dare go anywhere, because if you do, you know what happens. I will hunt you down. Cancer. We all know someone whose life has been impacted by this deadly disease. A friend, a colleague, a family member, someone in your community. No one is immune from it. But as each day passes, the fight continues to find a cure that one day will eradicate cancer from all our lives. One of the ways you can join the fight is through Red Card Cancer. Its mission is a call to action to help defeat the world's biggest opponent by uniting the global game of soccer in the fight against cancer. Together with the American Cancer Society, the soccer community is raising money and awareness for cancer research. If you or your soccer organization would like to support the American Cancer Society and Red Card Cancer, head over to redcardcanceracs.org as well as redcardcancer.org. Red Card Cancer, where a cure is our goal. Hi, this is Phil Wedden, Director of the International Goalkeeper Coaches Conference and Goalkeeper Coach for the Philadelphia Union. You're listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with your host, Giovanni Puccini. 
Welcome back to the GP Soccer Podcast. Yes, Giovanni Piccini here. Still here. I'm not going anywhere. You all know that by now. I'm not going anywhere. In fact, I'm everywhere. You're here in the GP Soccer Podcast on WMEX, uh, AM 1510 here in the Boston area. If there's soccer to be covered, if there's soccer to be talked about, uh, you know, I'm I'm covering it or at least doing the best I can. Uh, As I noted to all of you uh, in the opening block uh, of the show, we have a return guest. And that is Skip Gilbert, who is the CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer, or USYS, as we like to call it. Um, and um, we're going to have a conversation today about well, what is USYS? What is U.S. Youth Soccer? Or what is, where is it in terms of the overall soccer landscape? Um, and then we'll get, kind of get into some things that, that Skip and I have talked about off the air, some of the visions that, that, that uh, he's, he has for USYS. Um, so. With all of that said, uh, our our guest today, once again, is Skip Gilbert, the CEO of USU Soccer, USYS. Skip, welcome back to the GP Soccer Podcast. Well, thank you, Giovanni. It's it's an honor to be back. And yes, you are everywhere, even down here in Texas. Well, you know, I try, man. I I, I try. I try to get everywhere. Um, you know, one of the great things about doing a podcast versus the terrestrial radio thing I'm doing at WMEX is it's, you, you get global. And I'm it, and it's kind of weird. And I'm sitting here in Boston in my studio and I, you know, you know, every week I check the, you know, how many listeners and, but what blows me away the most is like, oh my God, someone's listening to me in, you know, Sweden or Italy sure. or, you know, Colombia. Uh, my goodness, the reach is, is pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. Um, so yeah. So I guess I am kind of everywhere, but right now I'm with you. I'm with you. So here's what I like to start, Skip. Um, a little bit of your background uh, before you arrived at USYS. You know, you've, you've got extensive background, you know, in, in tennis and, and swimming. Share with my audience your 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 kind of a professional background uh, prior to your being named CEO of US Youth Soccer. Sure. Well, again, thank you for having me on. But my background has primarily been within the Olympic movement. Uh, so you had mentioned I, I was with US Tennis, uh, running their their being the manager of their U.S. Open and overseeing the pro tennis side of the organization. Um, I was the chief marketing officer for USA Swimming, the chief executive officer for USA Triathlon. Um, and I actually spent a little bit of time as the head of sales and marketing for U.S. soccer way, way back when. So I kind of came through the ranks in a sales and marketing role, uh, was able to pull in a lot of the other disciplines that you know, any of the, the big sports need. And, and here I am now back in soccer, you know, having having played at all different levels uh, and back with USYS. And in terms of USYS, you know, what is it, um, you know, where, where, where does it stand in terms of its place in the U.S. soccer landscape? When I say U.S. soccer, not the federation per se, but, you know, truly the, the United States soccer landscape. You know, the best way to describe USYS, it's it's almost like the thread that connects all of the different state associations together to form a national network of support for all the different constituents that embrace the game, whether you're a player, a referee, a coach, club administrator, a parent, and to some degree, even our alumni. Um, it, it creates a, a unified force to be able to help kids get the most out of the game, whether they're in Hawaii, in Maine, in Boston, in Texas, wherever they are, uh, we have all different levels of programming that kids can embrace. Now, I love, this is interesting. I I, I hope it's more interesting now that we're post-COVID, but 
you're named CEO of U.S. Soccer, and then this little thing called um, COVID happened. Share with my audience what that was like uh, when you're, you know, when, with, during, during that that time that uh, literally stopped the world. And now looking back on it, uh, I got two, three years, you know, post COVID. In retrospect, how did the, how did how did you think you handle things? How did you think the, the organization handled things? Was this was there a, was there a silver lining? When everything came to a, a halt with not only just USYS, but, you know, with with uh, you know, everything in general. Sure. Now, you know, and it's interesting because I was going through the final interviews with the USYS board in December, um, and they certainly didn't ask, what's my vision for when the world comes to a stop? <laughs> um, because literally two months into my tenure, uh, towards the end of February, we started uh, to back down the programming. We we pulled show, uh, some of our showcases um, away and and just again each of the states, depending on how the pandemic hit, um, literally just put the brakes on. And here we are now. In in retrospect, the great I guess the silver lining of the pandemic, if there could be one, is that it enabled us to really take a, a look in the mirror. What is it about USYS that was falling short? And and I'd said it to the staff all along. You know, if we were building USYS for tomorrow's players today, what would it look like? And so the programs, we put every program under a microscope to say, is it relevant to today's player or to tomorrow's player today? And if it was, great, let's continue to support it. If it wasn't, let's change it. And if it was completely irrelevant, let's go ahead and, and just simply remove it. And during that time, we came out with two programs that that we've launched in the last year and a half. One is our USYS University, which is meant to be a, almost a community resource so that any information that you might need on or off the field to play, we're hopeful that the soccer community and, and the youth soccer ecosystem will look to that platform to be able to get engaged. And then the other element more on you know sort of at the base of the pyramid you know we we have the, the the elite and and recreation i was out on a run one day and i was just kind of going through the idea of recreational soccer and i hate that term because it's generally preceded by oh he's just a rec player or she's just a rec player so we wanted to create a concept that would help give kids something they could believe in and we launched league america and League America is slowly moving out through the state associations and out into the various clubs. And it's designed to give kids that aren't thinking they're going to be D1 players or play for their country or play in any of the pro leagues. It gives them something to believe in. And they're not just a rec player. They play for League America, which ultimately, if we if we do get it in every state around the country, it'll be the largest youth soccer league in the world. So, you know, being able to to really focus on what we need to do coming out of the pan get the pandemic has enabled us once the green light went on to hit the ground running. So staying within the pandemic for just a brief moment before we, we get out of the pandemic in terms of our conversation, you know, you you wrestled not just you, but uh, but you wrestled with, you know, uh, different factions of folks across across your membership. Um, and, and those were like, we, we have to play. Or no, we we can't play. And then there were those who were like, well, they were kind of on the fence. Do, do we play? Do we not play? What was it like during that time where you were you're you dealing with those literally three different views on on playing or not playing? 
you know, it was it was constant juggle. I mean, you you hit it on the head. There were some states that had completely locked down and nobody could play. And yet everybody started thinking, well, kids need exercise. They still want to be able to play. And what kind of programming can you do? And you know, we we launched a video service and, you know, we'd get kids showing how they play goal, you know, practice their goalkeeping skills on their couch. Um, you know, so we were able to at least stay connected that way. But then there were also some states that literally changed the rules. They were allowing some of their kids to play, but they wanted the rules of the game to change. Um, you know, you couldn't, have, there were no throw-ins. You had to do kick-ins. You couldn't, a corner kick, you couldn't kick it into the box. I mean, so there were, there were individuals that were trying to at least make the game playable, given the handcuffs that, that we had from the pandemic. So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, everybody did the best that they could with it. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of emerged with still that, that passion to want to play. And so when the green light went on, they, the numbers were, were still real strong um, in terms of the, the amount of kids that, that want to play the sport. I went to one high school game, Skip, um, when here in Massachusetts, uh, at the high school level, the green light, and I say that with a very small G, the green light was given for kids to participate uh, in soccer at the high school level. Um, at the time, my my brother uh, was the assistant coach at Foxborough High School here in, here in Foxborough, Mass, and his son, my nephew, was a starting center back. So I I, I wanted to go down and see what what, what did it look like because I read about it and and you know I went back and forth, Skip, and I think a lot of people were, were kind of fit, you know, what I'm describing. I, I'm like, okay, great, these kids are out. They're outside, and, I, and I'm an ex-physical education teacher, so being active and you know is is part of my DNA. And I'm like, oh, this is great. They're out. But then I had another part of me that that reared its head that said, this this isn't right. This there was something there was something wrong with it, as you noted. Um, you know, no throw-ins. You you couldn't head the ball. Um, you know, you, you could barely touch one another. Um, you know, there was incidental contact, intentional contact referees discerning the difference between those two. So you had a lot of inconsistency in terms of calls, um, kids afraid to go after a ball, a 50-50 ball. Um, so I went back and forth. I, I literally went went back and forth. Um, I mean, it, at the end of it all, it all worked out. I mean, it it all worked out as, as we now know. But uh, yeah, it was, um, I don't know if it was soccer, but it was something, but it was something. So No, it, and it was. And, and again, it's it's one of those that, we all know, you know, and, and you, Giovanni, being, being an educator, you know the kids need to be active. Mm -hmm. And we see the, the correlation between activity, um, character development, you know, your good grades. It, it all kind of blends together. And so it made every sense in the world to be able to adapt the sport for the short term to be able to ensure that the kids get what they need for the long term. And for, you know, many of the purists and those that, you know, have been around the game for, for decades, like, you know, probably you and me, it may have seemed odd, but it was the right solution to be able to get through because what we found and what we're seeing is because many kids didn't play, you started to see more and more of the mental health issues that were starting to surface and some of the problems that we're still seeing today. And, and part of the charge, and this is something that we're still looking at today moving forward, is that we still need for soccer to offer alternative programming 
outside of just 11 v 11 practice, a couple of practices a week, which would align itself with other sports. I mean, the pa- pandemic, for example, didn't impact, you know, football's change, but it was concussions that changed American football to change at the youth level from tackle to flag football. And the impact that's having on future numbers has been significant. Mm. So I think the pandemic kind of opened our eyes to saying, you know what, if we want to keep kids engaged in the game, we might need to look beyond what has been consistent with the sport so that those that may want to leave the sport will stay connected. Yeah, you know, I remember doing a training session uh, for ODP North up there in New Hampshire. Uh, it was the very first training session that we started to conduct. Um, and yeah, everyone obviously was was masked up. And it was that was a bit of a surreal environment and literally an environment for me as, as well. And, and the players and parents alike uh, doing trying to do a training session for these ODP kids, um, you know, still abiding by the restrictions that that were set forth by the you know, state association. Um but in any event, it's behind us. Um, I think we learned a lot from it. Um, uh, hopefully, we're all better because of it. Um, but let's move on. You know, you, you touched upon some of the, the the different ways or different thought processes about how to keep kids engaged. You, you talked about some of the, the innovative uh, programs you're, you're offering through USYS, USYS University, Recreation League America, and that type of thing. But let's let's continue the the conversation you and I had kind of off the air a couple of weeks ago about looking how we present the game, and I'm putting that in quotes, differently than what we currently do. What were some of the things that, that, that um, your thoughts on, on that area? Oh, sure. And, and, and if I could, a, a quick shout out. I, sure. We were talking about ODP. Um, this year, one of the changes coming out of the pandemic is we wanted our OTP where you go at the state level, then the regionals, and then the, the, the selection for the national camps. And this year, we decided to put the ODP national teams into competition. And the younger kids are at the Mayor's Cup. Um, the older kids will go to the Dallas Cup. Last weekend, the boys were in Las Vegas at the Mayor's Cup, and the 09 team won their won their age group, and they were actually playing up a year. Um, so it was a phenomenal uh, performance by those players, but again, a testament of the strength of the entire ODP program. So, um, but but going back to your question, the the catalyst was. We're seeing a number of kids leave the sport between anywhere. It's getting younger between 10 and, you know, and up. And one of the and and the reasons they're leaving is they either feel burnt out. They're not having fun. They just don't feel like they're good enough or they can't play with their friends. And so when you look at the what's being offered to them is 11 v 11. You come to practice twice a week. This is the paradigm. And if you can't fit it we're not sure what to do with you. And in which case, a lot of kids are just leaving. And so what can we do as a sport to be able to still inject the the soccer lifestyle and offer them something that will keep kids connected? They may not play you know, your typical club ball, but there's got to be a way that they can play soccer with their friends when they want, how they want it moving forward. You know, you, we're talking about breaking a a a culture a soccer culture that has been kind of locked in uh relative to you know here's the path of which you can you can play you, know, you can follow this path you know through say high school you can follow this path you know a youth player a club player or you can follow this path high school or college 
and, and we become very rigid, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, very rigid in terms of the pathways by which kids can play soccer. What we're talking about here is kind of kind of breaking that rigidity and finding other ways, other avenues, other opportunities for kids to still participate in the game without following, well, those those paths that I just described. Is that is that a safe assessment? It it really is, Giovanni. It, it, it's if you look at let's take basketball, for example. Basketball went through the exact same thing. Kids were starting to leave the sport at, at, at just before they got to the teenage years. Basketball came out with the 3v3 concept, and it's now an Olympic sport. Um, you know, and uh, and so from soccer's perspective, it's not like we're trying to to remove that that model that's there now because you're still going to get millions of kids that are going to go through that and that pathway. But for the kids that you know in that group that they they feel burnt out, they um, they're not playing with their friends, they they don't feel like they're good enough. Can we create that 3v3, 5v5, you know, the, the small-sided, almost free play model where they can come when they want and to be able to just get out and play? And we're starting to see pockets of it around the country, but they're not necessarily connected and the kids are just kind of out there on their own. And of course, as USYS, you know, we'd love to be able to keep them within the family so that they can still use all the resources that the organization has to offer. But can we do it in a format that they find acceptable, that they get excited about, and it keeps them, which hits our vision of bringing communities together through the power of soccer, making lifelong fans of the game. And if we, you know, if, if we want to emulate, you know, what happened in Argentina and all of the Argentinians around the world that that celebrated that World Cup victory. We don't want kids that left the game kind of, you know, because they didn't like it any longer at 12, thinking that are we going to keep those individuals connected as adults? It's just not going to happen. And so therefore we're losing the ability to keep kids connected and fans of the game for life. Let's spend a moment on this word fun. Um, and as I look at your USYS Players Bill of Rights, you have one of those to have fun. Um, you know, it's 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 a very short, small word, but my goodness, it is it has become a very, very important part of uh, the reason why we're losing kids. I mean, uh, the research, the data is out there, anywhere from 65 to 7% of kids participating in youth sports are quitting by the time they hit high school, oftentimes middle school. The additional research will say, well, one of the main reasons why they quit is because it's not fun. By association, coaches, teachers of the game who embrace coaching education, coach development, and become better teachers of the game create much more fun and challenging environments, i.e. fun, and lo and behold, this is not rocket science. The kids have fun and the kids stay and the retention levels go up. So a, a, a byproduct, I think, of what you and I are talking about is the importance of coaches out there who are involved in the game, who are teachers of the game, to, to embrace coach development, to embrace coach education, both formally and informally, so the kids can have fun. Um, as you very well know, Skip, I am a huge proponent of street soccer. I'm a huge proponent of coaching with a street soccer mentality. I did a presentation on this at the United Soccer Coaches uh, Convention in Kansas City a couple of years back, and uh, it was it was well well received, which made me happy. Um, this idea of the free play model, I think, is terrific, and and to find its place in the rigidity of what the U.S. soccer landscape looks like, 
I guess could be part of a challenge. But I've got to believe that kids being kids, if you just like to play, and you're not going to go out and play on your own, i.e. street soccer or pickup basketball, you know, those those types of things. If there was a place you go, even just under the, the umbrella of a formal organization like USYS, why wouldn't you want to go out and just play and, and play freely? And such an important word there too, freely. And I'm pontificating here and I apologize. <laughs> but as you know, this, this is near and dear to my heart. What are your thoughts on all of that pontification? It's it's actually very spot on in the sense that, you know, when I was growing up, you know, we'd go out and with the neighborhood kids, we'd play, <laughs> um, you know, pick up football or basketball or, or wiffle ball or, you know, any of the sports and soccer, you know, all of the sports, you know, depending on which season it was, you'd just be outside playing after school. You know, in today's world, you don't get that at all. You know, everybody is so scheduled. So, Part of the ability to create free play also has to be a behavioral switch within society to embrace free play across all sports. And again, you know, I'm a big proponent of multi-sport play for kids, you know, until they get to a certain age, as they start entering their teenage years, if they truly are passionate about one sport, they're going to start to narrow their focus down. But, you know, it, it really doesn't make sense. And all of the data and the scientific data supports that, you know, for for kids that are, you know, six, seven, eight, if they're only playing one sport, they may not necessarily develop to where they could be if they were playing multi-sports. So, um, you know, I think culturally, we also have to get people to believe more in that free play ethic across multiple sports. Let's use our imaginations for a second, uh, or maybe not. Maybe you've already have this more formally put together than, than I know. But let's look at the free play model. USYS has got this kind of street soccer, small-sided game program. And I, and I, for the lack of better words, I'll use program. I'm trying to stay away from things that formalize what we're talking about it to keep it as free and as street as possible. But nonetheless, what would it look like? Are we talking about, you know, will there be coaches? And you can't say big air quotes here. Will there be adults, again, even bigger air quotes, you know, um, managing the, the the free play? And if that's the case, what are the rules, are the expectations about coaching? Because if we're talking about free play in a true street soccer environment, there ain't no coaches. There ain't nobody that is that is directing the kids and what they should and should be doing. What does it look like? What does it look like, whether you have it, you know, done formally or for your imagination? <laughs> That's a good question. The whiteboard, as we try to fill it, you know, I, there's a couple of things at play. One, free play by design is to allow kids to to play on their own, to coach themselves, to referee themselves. You know, just to, you're out there having fun, and it's more. You know, growing up in New York, you go out into New York City um, years ago, and, and and every basketball court was filled with people with kids that were just out playing. Um, and we want that same sort of ethic. The interesting spin today is that if there's any kind of um, oversight, we still have to err on player and participant safety. So in today's world, you know, it may not be a coach, but there needs to be an, an adult mentor that is there just to make sure the kids are, stay, are safe mm -hmm. and to ensure for the parents that their kids are safe. 
So, you know, there has to be that at least designed to it. The rest of it, again, you know, we're we're seeing there's there's a group metal sports in Chicago. Um, you know, there's there's a group out of Idaho that that's creating the small sided fields to put into, you know, areas that 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 is almost like a parking lot. Um, urban, I guess it's urban soccer park. So there's a number of these groups that are that are out and about. And the reality is the ones that do really well, it's in our best interest to kind of take that and how do we push that all around the country so that the success builds success. You know, yeah, yeah, you, you're spot on when you talk about the, the need for adult supervision. Um, certainly, you know, in, in today's society where all kinds of crazy things happen out there, um, yeah, you, you need the adult supervision. I guess the real challenge is making sure that adult doesn't keep score, you know, or the adult doesn't try to sneak in and coach and that type of thing. Yeah, if, if you could create that, my goodness, uh, that that that's perfect. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, <laughs> I can't help it, but have flashbacks. My own head skip. Growing up here in the Boston area, uh, when I was growing up here in Boston, you know, soccer was but a blip on the screen, and you know, I was very lucky to play for my church league. So I played a lot of hockey growing up. And as you very well know, here in the Boston area, back in the seventies, I'm going to show my age just a little bit here. Uh, street hockey was king. The Boston Bruins were king, and I remember very vividly getting out in the streets uh, and literally playing street hockey, and uh, you know, having to sort things out. What happens if there was an odd number of kids? We had to sort that out. What happened when a car came? I was a goaltender. I had to worry about picking the goal up, putting it on the sidewalk, and then bringing it back out. How do we restart the game? Uh, how do we sub? All those great things. All those great things, aside from sport, that we learned how to do in that free play model, using using your term, were invaluable. And we're part of, a very important part of our growth as as young people, you know, uh, just just growing up. Um, and I think more and more people, again, I'm going to pontificate, more and more people, if they understand those benefits outside of the sport per se, I think more and more people would, would get it, embrace it, and they go, this is just a healthy thing for my kid to do because it's all these other things that he or, he or she is going to have to sort out when they get together and play and play street soccer. And yeah. you hit the nail on the head on sense of the character development for off skill off field um you know development is just phenomenal when it comes down to the benefits of, of free play you know because again i and i say it all the time as an executive you know in the world of sport having played on the on the field and as a goalkeeper seeing everything in front of me unfold allowed me to take all of that knowledge from the field and use it in my business life and my personal life. And in today's world, because there isn't as much backyard play or, or free play, a lot of times we're, we're almost concerned about kids being too robotic, where they can't do anything unless they're given a direct coaching order to do this, this, and this. And so I think there's a compliment. Again, we're not we're not professing that that there's not the you know the typical pathway that gets up to the the college ranks and to help kids become professionals, but there has to be a mix. And and if we are able to do that, I think the numbers of kids playing and staying in the sport is going to exponentially increase. And I would also say, Skip, and I'm sure you would agree. That this this idea of small set of games, the free play model, as we describe with an, with adult supervision, that from that dynamic, it's another 
another dynamic that could develop a player organically. You, you see a kid that, you know, maybe not a, didn't play youth soccer, didn't play club soccer, but boy, they're playing in this model. And the more they play and the more they figure things out on their own uh, in terms of what, you know, the game teaches you from a sports standpoint, heck, maybe that kid does, you know, draw the attention of a, of a, high, of a, of a club or a high school or, or maybe someday college. I mean, the, the, the soccer landscape, and you know this, is littered with tons and tons of stories of some of our greatest players learning the game, learning the creativity um, while playing street soccer, while playing street soccer. Um, going back to my presentation I did a couple of years ago, the opening part of it was all these all these great players who were quoted as saying, yep, I learned in the streets. I learned in the streets. I learned in the streets. My creativity was found in the streets. Um, putting this in place under the umbrella, say, USYS, I think is could be an, a new, new dynamic where some of our most creative players can can be born devoid of some of the, you know, devoid of the coaching that a lot, the two oftentimes takes place that can stifle the development of a, of a player. Again, I, I apologize for pontificating, but as you know, near and dear to my heart, um, what are your thoughts on that? It's potential for developing our next group uh, or, or continuous group of creative players. It, it, it's exactly what I believe the sport needs, mm. you know, certainly here in the U S and to your point, you know, if you if you think about some of the some of the great athletes in the United States, many of them gravitate to basketball, football, baseball, you know, because that's sort of, quote unquote, the money sport and the heritage of the money sport in the United States. So what if you get kids that are playing football, baseball, basketball that are fantastic athletes at six, eight, 10, 12 and Right now, they may not have the opportunity to join a soccer team because they've never played. And there's that stigma that, oh, my gosh, if your kid hasn't paid, played by the age of 12, there's no way they're ever going to catch up. By having this alternative programming, some of those great athletes can come into soccer, kind of get their feet wet. And if they really take off, then they can go right back into the kind of the normal soccer programming. But the other side of it is also we might have kids that six, eight, 10 just haven't really developed, you know, psychologically or physically. And by the time they're 12 and 14 in today's world, they very well may have left soccer. But if we're able to offer alternative programming, the light might go on when they're 13 and 14, and suddenly they could be our next superstar coming through the ranks. So, you know, the alternative programming isn't meant to, again, to replace. It's simply allowed, allowing us to expand the horizons for everybody. And not to mention the collective sigh of relief from parents, maybe even some of the adult mentors or supervisors. You don't have to win. You're not going to, to win. Just go out there and just play. Just play and have fun. Uh, no standings, you know, who cares, you know, who scores more goals or gives up more goals. You're out there to have fun. I've got to believe that there's a significant uh, amount of folks out there, parents, coaches, whoever, who are involved in the game, that would just go, oh, my goodness. This is just so nice to have the kids just play and not worry about you know, uh, you know, winning and losing and, and, and standings and that type of thing. Um, and I've got to believe as well, and, and I'd love for you to address this, you know, making it a community thing, which would cut down on travel. I mean, if you had your, just your communities doing this and your, your local hometown or, you know, uh, or, or a, a few surrounding towns, 
another sigh of relief. Oh my God, I don't have to travel two hours Saturday morning for my kid to go play a you know a, a club soccer game that you know is is only an hour and a half long. You know, um, what are your thoughts on that that dynamic relative to what we're talking about? Yeah, I do believe that from a community standpoint, that is going to be a driver of of success because again, it's. It's meant to be for the kids that, you know, get up and they want to get on their bike and go down the street, play, and then go home. Mm. Uh, I mean, again, going back to the sort of the the dreams, you know, it would be great. One of our partners is Dick Sporting Goods, and we've actually had discussions of them of bringing one of these urban soccer parks into their parking lot so that when parents bring their kid, when they go shopping, they can drop the kids off. They can go out and just, just play for an hour, and when they come out, they get back in the car and they go home and they've mm-hmm. had a grand old time, um, you know. And so from from that perspective, you know, being able to figure out how can we do that? I mean, even as a as a parent of soccer players, as they were developing and they were playing in the club system, it, it would have been great if, you know, one day a week, they, they you know, my son or daughter could have gone and, and just played 3v3 or 5v5 um, just for an hour to, to experiment on what they want to do without feeling the pressure of having to do things correctly because the coach is watching. Yeah. Amen. You know, I, as, as you and I chat, I am having flashbacks. I, I had a wonderful trip to Iceland a few years ago. One of the things I, I, I have tried to do in my later years as a, is a continual lifelong learner is to travel to different countries and, and learn about, you know, the way they develop coaches, the way they develop players, what the soccer landscape is like. Um, and one of the best trips was to Iceland. Uh, and as we both know, Iceland has done an extraordinary job in terms of developing player for a very small country up tucked up in the North Atlantic. Um, and one of the great things about the Icelandic culture is that they like to get out, period. And, and even if it's frigid, they still like to get out. Um, and one of the things that they have done um, in terms of investments, and at every school, they put in, I'll call it a soccer court. We're familiar with, with schools putting in basketball courts. Well, there they have soccer courts. So before school starts, you get there early. Kids are playing soccer. They're there playing at recess. After school, they go out and play. Um, again, this is another way of, of, of creating this free play model, this free play dynamic, this street soccer, albeit in a court per se. What are your thoughts on, um, on corporate partnerships? Heck, everything has to do with dollars and cents. And if you can get someone to pay, pay the bills. That's even better. What are your thoughts on corporate sponsorships, corporate partners to to creating these types of environments where kids can just go and play? It would be a dream. Um, You know, the reality when you look at Iceland, you know, one of the nice things about most countries outside of the United States is that governments inject funds for youth sport development. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the United States, the U.S. government doesn't support the Olympic movement. They don't inject really money into the youth as a developmental tool. So if we were able to, whether it's the government or a corporate sponsor uh, proposal for these fields at schools, I, I think that's going to be a way to really fast forward this to, you know, to, to make it just, again, part of the social fabric of the sport in this country. Um, that's the hurdle. Where can we, you know, how do we, how do we do it? And, you know, playing in the, playing in the parking lot is possible, but, you know, it's, it's not quite today's world being able to go out and and go into a dedicated area that just allows you to play. 
Yeah, you know, we live in the United States of America where capitalism is king, like it or not, good or bad. Uh, it is what it is, um, which is why I kind of tied it into the, the notion of corporate partners. And public-private things can be can be wonderful done correctly. And I think this could be one of those things. I have a good friend of mine, a dear friend, uh, Darius Shirzadi, who oversees Project Goal. I'm going to give him a big shout out in Central Falls, Rhode Island. And uh, through corporate partners, they had just put in... Uh, I think two, and I'm, I'm going to, I might be wrong on that, two or, or three um, soccer mini courts of what we're talking about here. And uh, and this is, Central Falls is, you know, uh, a very challenging socioeconomic neighborhood uh, community. Uh, a lot of, a lot of ethnic folks who love the game of soccer. And this has been a, this has been a boom for his project goal program. Um, and again, I think he worked with a corporate partner, uh, worked out really, really well. Uh, corporate, the corporate folks are happy and they get their name out and, uh, you know, they, they've got a logo, I think, in the middle of the uh, of the court, which is fine. And the kids get to come and play. Um, and it's also a venue by which, you know, uh, Darius's kids uh, in Project Goal formally have a place to go uh, and, and play. You know, I, I would say outside of the corporate, you know, approach, I think parents and, and, and folks who are, you know, soccer people who've got kids who play soccer, you know, when you go to your school committee meetings, you go to your, you know, your, your, your town meetings, you can talk about using your tax dollars going toward, you know, uh, put, instead of putting in a basketball court, hey, can we put in a soccer court, you know, uh, or put a basketball court instead of having two basketball courts, one soccer court, one basketball court. I think the power of folks attending their school committee meetings, their, their, their open town meetings, uh, getting involved, you know, with, with the, the dynamics of local government, you can put your tax dollars to work to potentially put these types of things in your parks and in your schools. I'm no, absolutely. Looking and, for different ways uh, to spend money. There is, you know, and, and whether it's corporate, whether it's local government, national government, um, there, there's got to be a way to do it. And, you know, once we find that model, you know, it, it's really our role to try to, to duplicate that in every community around the country. Um, you know, U.S. Soccer Foundation has a great program with their mini pitches concept, and they're mm -hmm. trying to get a thousand mini pitches in communities around the country. Um, and, you know, they're they're doing a, a great job with it. Um, it's just, you know, again, the size of the United States, a thousand mini pitches doesn't cover every community around the country. So um, lots of work to be done. But, you know, again, if we if we have the confidence that that the solution would energize the amount of players that stay in the game, come into the game, and just love the game. Um, I, I think we we can't look under every rock to find a solution. Let's stay with that point because you bring up something very, very important that you touched upon early and just touched upon it there, staying in the game. Um, we have to remember as, as those of us who are involved in the game, um, whether it's you're the CEO of USYS or you're a local coach, uh, you know, coaching your community, we're looking to create soccer fans. We're looking to, you know, when, when kids' playing days are over, and sometimes playing days could be over at youth, it could be high school, it could be college, heck, it could be professional. We still want them to be fans. We still want them to, to go to MLS games, NWSL games, go to your local high school, college games, um, you know, follow the international game, you know, buy the cool hats and, and banners and, and scarves and that type of thing. Part of what we're talking about here, or maybe all of what we're talking about here, is creating lifelong soccer fans what are your thoughts on that one there skip yeah that's the the ending of our vision is making lifelong fans of the game you know and, and i've i've said this many times to me 
you know, as much as when you look at the player development pyramid at the very top are our national championships and, you know, some of the best players around come out of, out of that pathway, you know, it's great that for anybody that is able and lucky enough and skilled enough to play on a national championship team. But at the end of the day, to me, success needs to be measured on how many of your kids still follow the sport in their 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, and, and, and that's where soccer as a lifestyle really takes hold. And if we can inject that enthusiasm and the love for the game into players so that they just want to be involved with it, whether they're buying a jersey, going to a game, watching it on TV, or just talking about it to their colleagues and friends, that's where we need to get to. And we're we're in the right, we're getting there slowly but surely. But I think everything that you and I have been talking about today could sure, certainly help us get there quickly. You know, every once in a while, I have to remind myself uh, of how far we have come in terms of the sport of soccer here in the United States of America. America. I have no problem saying that I'm 64 years old. Um, and in my lifetime, I go back to days, again, I'll go back, I grew up here in the Boston area, where, you know, uh, in the early days of, ASL American Soccer League. I go back to the Boston Beacons, the Boston Astros back in those days, and soccer made in Germany on 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 uh, public television. And um, you know there was no such thing as youth soccer or club soccer. Um, I remember going to the north end of Boston with my father and my grandfather, watching closed circuit television to see games from from Italy, uh, and going there and seeing these these grainy screens and and watching the game. And here we are in 2023. We've come, on a, we've come a long, long way in that very short period of time, at least within my lifetime. Um, and every once in a while, I have to remind myself of that because I can be very hard on the game on where we should be. But um, we've, we've come a long way. We've come a long way. And, and part of what we're talking about here is, is part of that, you know, part of that process, um, to, you know, to, to develop great players and, and have lifelong, um, you know, lifelong fans of, of the game. Um, so let's let's shift back to you know some general aspects of soccer because I, I don't want to let you go before I, I kind of get your your thoughts and opinions and share with my audience your thoughts about the game in general here in the United States uh, on the men's side on the women's side uh, we just concluded a, a World Cup uh, we're preparing for the women's World Cup uh, you know coming up what are your general thoughts on the game in general here in the United States of America in 2023? You know I'm I'm very confident that you know we we're putting out some great talent, you know, across the, across the country, we're, we're identifying some great players. We're, we're, you know, creating the environment where kids want to play the sport at high levels. You know, they're not just playing here. A lot of our players, as you know, on, on both the men's and women's side, playing around the world with, with professional clubs. So we're starting to see that level of success um and and continue the success i mean obviously we'd, we'd love for the women to continue to win world cups we'd love for the men to to get to the point where they can win a world cup um and and so from that standpoint you know i think i think we're getting there um you know i think for me again it's more how do we you know create that that lifestyle switch for people to really embrace the game um and to really differentiate between soccer, football, baseball, hockey, you know, all of the different choices that that people have in this country, how do we make sure that soccer is the one that that they want? 
and it, it comes down to programming. It comes down to, you know, the pathways, you know, it, it's a lot of, a lot of different, uh, it's a lot of different connection points, but, you know, again, I think yeah, there's great opportunity out there. I think we certainly need to be doing some things um, to ensure that both the men and women can, you know, put out the best teams possible. You know, and my fear moving forward is if you're a, if you're a, I, I guess a fan of the Olympic movement, you know that anytime there's new programming into the Olympic program for you know any sport, the Americans are always on the podium first, and then the rest of the world catches up. And what we've seen and what we're concerned about on the women's side is that you know we've went with the women's World Cup and the success the U.S. has had. Well, now the rest of the world has has awoken and that they're putting significant dollars onto the women's side. And the question is, is can we continue to elevate our women's game to be able to stay with the competitiveness of the world? And so that's going to be a, a huge challenge. But, you know, from our perspective, you know, we're not we're not as focused on national team as we are on just developing kids to want to play the game. Um, and from our perspective, you know, at the base of the pyramid, you know, things are going extremely well. Mm. So, Skip, if people wanted to learn more about U.S. youth soccer, USYS, they wanted to contact you. What's what's the best way to learn about uh, USYS and all the things we've been talking about? You know, we're on we're on all the digital channels. You know, our website's usyouthsoccer.org. Um, you can you can uh, on the websites my cell phone and my my email address, um, people have it, they use it, they know how to get a hold of me. Our staff is very responsive. So, you know, that's the that's probably the best way to, to connect. But go to our website and see what you can find. And I encourage my listening audience, uh, particularly those here in the United States of America, within my uh, the listening audience, to, to take advantage of that. Um, you know, what Skip and I have been, been talking about, his vision uh, relative to the free play model and and. Uh, creating a lifestyle, soccer lifestyle is is uh, a pretty exciting thing, pretty exciting thing. And so I hope uh, folks really not just become interested, but get involved and absolutely get involved to bring this to a uh, a more widespread reality. So our guest today, uh, returning guest uh, is Skip Gilbert, CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer. I'm Giovanni Piccini. This is the GP Soccer Podcast. We're going to take a little bit of a break and then we'll get uh, we'll get back together on the other side. Don't you dare go anywhere. In the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, those who teach the game will find a wealth of coaching activities to improve, stimulate, and provide enjoyment for players of all ages and abilities. UEFA B licensed coach and Chelsea FC Player Development Center head coach Rob Ellis has drawn on more than 20 years of soccer coaching and physical education teaching experience to provide only those activities he has successfully used time and time again to engage and inspire his players. Each activity is graded from beginner to advanced, and they foster fresh and exciting ideas to coach the main techniques and tactics of soccer. The 252 coaching activities included in the Soccer Coaches Toolkit are also accompanied by an easy-to-understand description and diagram. The activities require only basic coaching equipment and can be adapted to challenge players of varying ability levels and needs. Soccer coaches at all levels of the game can use the activities to create one-off sessions for their players or use the activities to deliver regular sessions as part of a competitive training program. It is an ideal resource for both grassroots and elite youth coaches and will enhance both the players' and teams' development. 
The book is on sale worldwide and has scored a massive hit with professional coaches and players alike. Former Tottenham Hotspur youth coach John Rowan described the Soccer Coaches Toolkit as an astounding book. I consider it the Bible of soccer coaching. Head of Football Methodology at Monaco said of the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, it is a very useful book for coaches to widen their session database and provide variety in their coaching. Head of Soccer Development at Christ College Secondary School in London, Daniel Nielsen called the Soccer Coaches Toolkit a truly comprehensive library of drills and sessions for the whole spectrum of soccer techniques and tactics. In addition, the book has already been purchased and endorsed by former Wolverhampton Wanderers and Sunderland defender Jody Craddock, as well as ex-Leicester City striker Trevor Benjamin and Sutton United defender Joe Kizzy. The Soccer Coaches Toolkit is the ticket to a lifetime of soccer coaching ideas, a must-book to include in your soccer coaching library. Can't get enough soccer here in the GP Soccer Podcast? Would you like to hear a different twist on the game and still enjoy some terrific interviews, news, and analysis? Well, you can find Giovanni Puccini on his new show, Direct Kick, on WMEX AM 1510 every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Catch the show live on your radio or streaming on WMEXBoston.com. So tune in to Direct Kick with host Giovanni Puccini on WMEX AM 1510, Tuesdays from 6 to 7 p.m. Hey, this is TZ Layton, author of The Academy. You're listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with your host Giovanni Puccini. Welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, English and European Football Roundup, with your host, Rob Ellis. Hi everyone, and greetings from the Peach State. This is Rob Ellis, and I'm currently in the middle of my holiday in the beautiful city of Atlanta. I've managed to take a break from sightseeing and stuffing my face with food to bring you the seventh edition of my European Soccer Roundup. As always, I hope to educate and inform all of you listeners about the hot topics across European soccer. In today's show, we're going to get tactical. I'm going to explain the rise in popularity of the 4-2-3-1 formation across European soccer using the EPL and some of Europe's elite teams as examples of this rise. I'm going to suggest some reasons why the 4-2-3-1 has become such a popular system of play and balance up the pros and cons of this tactical approach. Before we get into the exploration, let me lay out some guidelines that will make things easier for you to follow. So first of all, what is a 4-2-3-1? Well, it's a formation that consists of a relatively flat line of four defenders, consisting of a right back, left back and two centre backs. Out of possession, the four will normally assume a flat line and try to reduce the width of the line from right back to left back. In possession, the full backs push higher and wider than the centre backs, but are generally expected to retreat into a defensive position when possession is lost. The two in the 4-2-3-1 are holding central midfield players. In possession, the two try to receive short passes from the back four and maintain flowing attacks by feeding the attacking midfielders in front of them. Out of possession, the central midfield two screen and block the space in front of the back four and try to prevent penetrative passes 
and attacking runs through and past the back line. The unit of three behind the centre forward are a largely attacking and creative unit of players. In possession, each of the three is responsible for creating goal-scoring chances for one another and the centre forward, as well as weighing in with their own supply of goals. Out of possession, the two wide attackers take responsibility for helping out the fullbacks defensively. The central player of the three usually remains relatively high up the pitch and is always ready to counter-attack. The centre forward is the focal point of the attack and usually the biggest provider of goals. In possession, they may have to hold possession to help structure attacks or play one-two combinations with teammates. Out of possession, the centre forward will normally occupy space higher up the pitch, but may also drop into a deeper position to help out defensively. During today's show, number two refers to the right back, three is the left back, four is one of the holding central midfield players, usually the more defensively minded one, five and six are the centre backs, number seven is the right sided player, the attacking three, eight is the second holding central midfield player, usually slightly more attack minded, nine is the centre forward, ten plays in the centre of the three attackers, and number eleven is the wide left attacking player. My first memories of English professional soccer were in the mid-1980s. At that time, the overwhelming majority of the 92 professional soccer clubs played a 4-4-2 formation. Other formations were rarely used. Towards the end of the 1980s, a small number of teams experimented with what was considered a more continental sweeper system. This involved adding another centre-back to the back four, who operated behind the back line to create a defensive five. To compensate for the sweeper, either one of the centre forwards would be removed to make a 5-4-1 formation, or one of the midfielders would be removed, leaving a 5-3-2 formation. Today, the 4-4-2 formation is less common in English professional soccer, particularly in the EPL, where, as explained earlier, the 4-2-3-1 is the most common. A smaller number of teams employ either a 4-3-3 or a 3-4-2-1 formation. Of the 20 EPL teams that played last weekend, 10 lined up with a 4-2-3-1. These teams were Arsenal, Leeds, Crystal Palace, Man City, Brighton, Leicester, Bournemouth, West Ham, Fulham and Manchester United. Four teams played a 4-4-2, Aston Villa, Wolves, Southampton and Everton. Three teams used a 4-3-3 in Newcastle, Chelsea and Liverpool. Nottingham Forest and Tottenham lined up in a 3-4-2-1 formation with Brentford going for a 5-3-2. Across Europe, it's also a popular formation. In the last 16 of the Champions League, Eintracht Frankfurt, Porto, Man City, RB Leipzig, Bayern Munich and Benfica all chose to line up in a 4-2-3-1. The popularity of the 4-2-3-1 is linked to the desire to dominate possession. The concept of dominating possession is hardly groundbreaking, However, more than ever, teams in the EPL and across Europe's top divisions are set up to dominate possession. Including the goalkeeper, a 4-2-3-1 creates five team units. This means that pitch coverage is great and the space in between the units is minimised. In theory, this makes it easier to scaffold possession from back to front and retain possession. The two holding midfield players and the attacking three are able to occupy the space in between opposition team units, particularly against 4-4-2s or 4-3-3s. Numbers 7, 11, 10 and 9 combine to make a front four in the attacking third of the pitch, 
which can apply a lot of pressure on any opposition backline for four, particularly on a quick counterattack. There is a great emphasis on technical ability in the EPL and amongst Europe's elite teams, and the expectation is that numbers 7, 10, 11 and 9 are able to create magic in the final third of the pitch and weave intricate patterns. This is very different to English soccer in the 1980s and 90s, when a typical 4-4-2 would often bypass the wingers and the central areas of midfield with long passes into and beyond the centre forwards. As a result, the turnover of possession was much higher and the attacking players had less responsibility for creative invention. The role of the number 10 in a 4-2-3-1 is the link between number 4, 8 and 9. 15 to 20 years ago, the number 10 was more of a shadow striker in the mould of Dennis Bergkamp or Paolo Di Canio, whereas now they are much more of a midfielder in the mould of Kevin De Bruyne or James Madison. The 4-2-3-1 essentially sacrifices a striker for a creative midfielder. Numbers 2 and 3 play higher up the pitch than in a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-3, as there is often areas of space in wide areas that numbers 4 and 8 are unable to cover and the fullbacks try to plug these gaps. The attacking emphasis in a 4-2-3-1 is on fluidity, rotation and invention, particularly for numbers 7, 11, 10 and 9. The EPL is awash with technically gifted attacking players. There are more and more players that want to be involved in the creation of goals. The fluidity and the license to create suits the technical abilities and mentality of many of the EPL's attacking players. Whether we are talking about the elite teams or lower ranking teams, most EPL squads boast some highly gifted and creative attackers. Crystal Palace, for example, who've endured a poor season, can boast three extravagantly gifted attacking players in Wilfred Zaha, Eberichi Eze and Michael Elise. From a defensive perspective, the 4-2-3-1 can be hard to play through, particularly once players are set in their defensive positions. The opposition must play out past the number 9, through the 7, 10 and 11, and then through the 4 and 8, and then try to penetrate the back 4. This is not an easy task. However, if the opposition can win possession higher up the pitch, off the wide attacking players, they can quickly exploit the wide areas in front of the back 4 and try to create overloads against the fullbacks. One of the major pluses in the 4-2-3-1 formation is that there are regularly four players in the attacking third, which is a major headache for the opposition defence. A feature of the 4-2-3-1 is the use of inverted wingers such as Grealish and Mares at Man City. The wingers cause double jeopardy for opposition fullbacks as they are able to cut inside and shoot off their preferred foot, or alternatively drift infield and then play the number two or three into the space that they vacated. Opposition teams can nullify the attacking threats posed by a 4-2-3-1 by using their number 4 to shadow the number 10 and disrupting their influence on the game. Against inverted wingers, the opposition fullbacks can try to force them in field and into congestion. If one of the opposition centre-backs tightly marks the number 9, then the other centre-back is free to snuff out attacking moves in field by the wingers. At its worst, the 4-2-3-1, particularly with inverted wingers, can get bogged down in front of the opposition defence. This leads to sideways passing in front of the defence, and then through fear of losing possession, passing backwards to numbers 4, 8, 2 and 3, 
the recycling of possession can become turgid and the opposition can get into a more comfortable defensive rhythm. Opposition coaches are well versed in playing against the 4-2-3-1 and so before too long a new formation will evolve and for a period of time refresh tactical theory. This may be a subtle change, for example turning the 4-2-3-1 into a 4-3-2-1 or a radical one. In terms of radicalism, it's hard to believe that Arsenal's all-conquering team of the 1930s played a 2-3-5 formation under the management of Herbert Chapman. Well, time flies and that's my time up. For the commotion community out there, I hope today's episode provided some insights into the 4-2-3-1 formation. We will for sure look at other formations in future episodes. With best wishes, this is Rob Ellis signing out. Bye for now. Well, many thanks to Rob Ellis for his terrific English Premier League European soccer report, as well as just general insight into the game. Rob does a terrific job, and as I've said on many occasions, a welcome addition to uh, the show here on the GP Soccer Podcast. Very quick thanks once again to Skip Gilbert, CEO of USYS. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. My goodness, uh, that that's our show for today here uh, on GP Soccer Podcast. If you like what you heard, my goodness, please tell everyone. You can follow the GP Soccer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Linktree, and on my website at gpsoccerpodcast.com. And don't forget to tune in to Direct Kick every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 p.m. on WMEX AM 1510 and streaming on WMEXBoston.com. This is your host, Giovanni Piccini, and I will catch you later. 